0: and welcome to Saga Shorts, where we're exploring the world of saga
1: literature. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And John, you've never really settled on a way of introducing these short episodes, have you?
0: Well, (laughs) no. But variety (laughs) is the spice of life, Andy. And I'm a spicy guy. You're a
1: spicy? That sounds nicer than inconsistent. Well, all right then. This is Saga Thing. But this is the fourth in our month-long series of episodes telling some of the stories of the fatter, the shorter narratives of medieval Iceland. Now, these stories, and there are a lot of them, there are hundreds of them,
0: they cover a wide variety of topics, and we've talked about some of the different ways of cataloging them, but Andy, I don't think we've seen anything quite like the one we're reading for today.
1: That's probably a fair statement. This one is uh, (laughs) a little unusual. It's called Thouter. and, well, I mean, you chose this one, John. I, You should explain it. <laughs> oh, out me, why don't you? I'm not going to explain this.
0: I really don't want to. It's pretty inexcusable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you chose um, it anyway.
0: I know we can sometimes get a bit PG-13 when we talk about this stuff, but I really feel like it's important to put a disclaimer on this one. Thouter is not appropriate for small children. It is not appropriate for most adults. This is what Victorian scholars would have called the sort of story written merely to make chins wag. It's a little vague, you know. Uh, it's about the afterlife of a severed horse penis and the family that worships it.
1: Is that clearer? Yeah. 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 Now, now I'm <laughs> wondering why we're doing this. But I know why. <laughs> but I know why. This is, well, among other things, this is the first outer we're covering that – that isn't included in the complete sagas of Icelanders, and it's kind of hard to find, and it's not super hard to see why it didn't make the cut for most translation collections, right. so to speak. That's
0: a, that's a classy opener, didn't make the cut. Um, didn't make the cut. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, this uh, this might be a good one to listen to while you're out on a walk or maybe after the kids have gone to bed.
1: So, uh, yeah, yeah, this is an obscure, dirty joke of a short story kind of thing, and uh, and we're going to read it why, John? I mean, honest, honestly, in part because I translated
0: it in grad school and I've always wanted a chance to make use of that work.
1: Let me ask you this, though. Why what? were you translating this in grad school? Did um, Bob ask you I to do a,
0: that? No, honestly, uh, I actually had a bunch of friends uh, who were really interested in the fact that I was reading this stuff because they and I had read Norse Smith together when we were younger. Yeah. And they you know, asked me what I was reading in school. And so... I spent a lot of time, like, outside of school translating Volsafowder because I thought it would be funny to send them. As something you're reading? And I couldn't find a good translation of it. And so I I sent it to them uh, as a, like, oh, you know, this is the kind of stuff I'm reading in grad school.
1: Liar. You're (laughs) just a liar. But it's a (laughs) good trick. it was an absolute
0: lie. But it it was, you know, they got really interested.
1: Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, but you know, John Grad School was a long time ago. Why are we reading it now? What's wh- why?
0: Well, because it's kind of a sequel to our Thouter from a couple of weeks ago.
1: A couple. Of, so, uh, which one was that? The one that I don't ever remember.
0: The story of Thorar and Nefilson.
1: Yes, yes. The uh, the trial by ordeal. The the blistered palm yes. saga. Yeah. Well, speaking of blistered but, uh, palms. Th- <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, that's exactly why your kids should not be listening to this. Uh, right, but Andy, this isn't a sequel to the Trial by Ordeal part. It's picking up a subplot of that Fowder. Okay. So I think to explain the
1: connection, we need to do a newsreel. No, no. Yeah. You know how yep. much I hate those. <laughs> You're just doing that to annoy me, right? You want to shoehorn these old-timey radio things so that I can... Last time on Saga Shorts.
0: Two fellows by the name of Thorarin Neffildsen and Thorsten Ragnarsson, the best of chums, moved from the court of King Knut to that of King Olaf the Saint in Norway. Unfortunately, they soon discovered that Olaf was more than a little paranoid about Knut's growing power, and was only too ready to lend an ear to a frame-up job. He hears a rumour that Thororin, Thorsten, and Thorarin's nephew Bjorni are part of a vast conspiracy to topple him from the throne. I really can't
1: believe we're bothering with one of these. The quicker you do it, the quicker it'll be over. Why don't you go tell it to the funny papers? Now, that whole fake conspiracy hullabaloo worked out just fine. The whole thing was just a misunderstanding created by jealous foes of Thorarin and friends. But the real problem was left unresolved. King Olaf and the King Knut are rivals for control of Norway. And like most kings, these two aren't generally known for their willingness to share. All right.
0: So now we're ready to talk about the action of Volsathoutr, which honestly really isn't all that connected to Thorarin's tale. You bastard. You enjoy wasting my time like this? I mean, I do actually, but there is a link, which is that kingly paranoia of Olaf's. Uh-huh. It turns out that he's he's paranoid for a valid reason. Knut really is after his throne. Well, he's Knut. And shortly after the story that we read, uh, shortly after
1: Thorarin's story, Olaf is forced to flee Knut's forces. Yeah, so this week's Thauter takes place just around the time that King Olaf is forced to run from Knut. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. I, It's a legitimate connection, if you want. So kind, so kind.
0: Uh, Oh, there's another thing about the story that makes it an
1: interesting read. Well, the poetry. Well, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of poetry here. It's a very a short tale, really, and there are over a dozen verses included in this one.
0: Yeah, it starts to feel a little weird honestly. Uh most of the spoken words are in verse form. Mm-hmm. And it's not stylized or anything. People are just taking turns speaking verses
1: about their um their favorite religious object. And that um uh, religious object is the focus of most of this tale. <laughs>
0: right. No, we, we shouldn't spoil all the fun before we get into the story, but we can also say this is a story about religious conversion.
1: Is that a fallacy or is that true? <laughs>
0: No, it's absolutely true. But thank you for for spotting that one as it went by.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, remember that King Olaf is called the saint, in large part for this success in spreading Christianity in the north of Europe. But this time, his religious conviction is going to come up against a slightly ridiculous representation of the old pagan ways.
0: Right. Now, that mockery of the old ways is, I mean, if there's... If there's any justification at all to be found for the existence of this story, and please let the record show that I did say if, but if there's a reason for this thing, it's the lampooning of older faith practices. Yes. All right. Now that that's all squared away, we just need to do our math homework and we can get started. Andy, we need a decikel rating.
1: So, yes, the decikel is our highly precise and very scientific calculation of how long the Thauter is when measured in tenths of a Hrofenkel. Which is the standard of saga measurement? Everyone knows that,
0: right? Of course they do. Uh, how would they not? And Andy, how many decikels would you guess we're looking at here?
1: Well, this one—it's not that long, and it's got mm-hmm. a lot of poetry, which makes it seem longer than it is. Right, but I'm still going to say it's longer than what we did last week, which was okay. um um what was what did we do last week? Oh, we did the one with the the guy with the horses. <laughs> <laughs> the, the golden child. about
0: Thorhall and Thithrandi.
1: Yes. The, oh, Thorhall. I hated him. Okay. Um. So, yeah, that was like well, 1.3. he's
0: not a big fan of yours either.
1: <laughs> Prophecy <laughs> this, Thorhall. Um. Okay, so what would this be? I would guess this one is like, I think it's closer to Thorarin and Nephilsen. I think it's going to be more close to 1.5, 1.6.
0: Very good. Uh, Volsathoutr runs a tidy 1.54 in oh. God, I'm so good. Very good. I'm so uh, which good. Puts it, now, that puts it ahead of last week's story, uh, which was at uh, 1.3 something, 1.36, mm-hmm. I believe, and
1: behind our Nephilsen, which was 1.59. You know what? It might be a little behind, and it might be on the light side, but, John, in this little voucher about a horse severed Johnson, does size really matter?
0: Yeah. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> that's not bad. Uh, I think we're going to have to put ourselves in some kind of a rationing system where this episode is just going to turn to the two of us
1: dicking around. Oh, oh, people, this is going to be the worst of the episodes we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now that uh, that's just percolating in our system, we can be very, very serious about this story. We're going to be serious. Yeah, I wouldn't forward. count on it.
0: Uh, the problem is this ain't a serious story. But let's get underway. It's time to visit a certain out-of-the-way farm in Norway. And I've got good news for you, Andy. Which is? It's slaughtering day at the farm. Oh, yay! Volsathauter, or How to Worship That Sweet Horse Meat That Can't Be Beat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This episode's going to be the... Either the best or the very worst that we've done.
0: Yeah, it's this, there's just, there's no way to, I mean, the text isn't being mature, so it's kind of hard to try to yeah. be ourselves. Uh, all right, I, I was getting a bit ahead of myself. Uh, before we get to the slaughtering, we have to introduce the actual people who live on this farm.
1: All right, I'll, I'll take care of that. Yeah. So this farm is owned by an older couple who live on their little farm in the northern reaches of Norway, near a deep harbor. And the husband, we're told, is a sensible but quiet and passive fellow, and the wife kind of rules the home and does most of the decision-making. Now, they live with their daughter and son, and the son is a good-humored young man with a lively personality, but he's also a bit rowdy and given to pranks and jokes. And the daughter, the eldest of the children, she's the smartest of the family and has both quick wits and common sense.
0: There are so few of us.
1: And then there's also two servants. There's a man and a woman who don't need names because they're servants. Right. And, and the dog, Andy. Don't forget about the dog. Yes, and the dog does have a name. The, the farmer has a large hunting dog named Larry. Right, and it tells you
0: something about this story, by the way, that Larry is the only person on the farm to get a name. Yes. The, uh, the farmer is the farmer, the wife is the wife, the son and the daughter are the son and the daughter, the slaves are the slaves, and the dog has a name. Uh, so,
1: Larry the dog.
0: Yeah, I think what we're dealing with here is a, a story full of archetypes, not people. Gotcha. Uh, But up here in the extreme north of Norway, Andy, these people haven't learned about
1: Christianity yet. Well, I mean, you don't get the impression they'd be especially interested in it if they did learn about it because they seem pretty attached to their old ways of doing things. Those are very important.
0: Yeah. And that brings us to Slaughtering Day. See, they're actually butchering a horse on this particular day. And that's something that actually marks this place out as Pagan.
1: Yes, because only pagans eat horse meat. If you check your Icelandic law codes, you'll find that out.
0: And I'll thank you enough to take that tone. That's correct. It's probably a distinction that was made in the literature and maybe in the law. Maybe not so much in actual medieval Iceland or Norway. Uh, But this is literature, and so that distinction makes sense here. All right. But this is hardly saga thing
1: theater, though, John.
0: Oh, I'm terribly sorry, Alistair Cook. I really (laughs) don't know how well this Thouter works for the dramatic arts. We'll give it a try. Okay. The horse died. <laughs> How's that?
1: <laughs> oh, I have chills. Where did you get that? Uh,
0: <laughs> I mean, who doesn't have a, a few sound files of dying horses around? Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: all
0: right. So, and I, I read on from there. The servant was given the job of skinning and butchering the horse. While skinning it, the servant cut off that member, which nature has given to all animals that multiply with intercourse, and which is named the
1: dangler on horses, according to the ancient poets. (laughs) It's already funny. Oh my god. If I had read this myself... I'd swear you made that, that last part up. The dangler. No, no,
0: that's a direct translation.
1: <laughs> According to the ancient poets, I think I've been reading different poets. I don't. I mean, is this Catullus or who is this? Who are we talking about? <laughs> Your poets don't call it a
0: dangler. No, no. By the way, by the way, Andy, how sorry are you now that you wasted the Monty Python song? Oh on man, saga? <laughs>
1: I really am. That's what a shame that we wasted that. Uh,
0: so the servant is about to throw away the dangler. Uh, but the farmer's son runs by and catches it. <laughs> he runs laughing into the farmhouse with the phallus flapping in the breeze and when he ducks inside he finds his mother, his sister and the servant woman. now yeah now Andy a more circumspect young man would be embarrassed at this moment but not this Maybe. fella. Well, he is a young man. He shakes the phallus at them and speaks a verse. Here you can see a frisky dangler cut away from a father of horses. For you, servant woman, this Volsi will not prove dull in your lap.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we're off. <laughs> wow. There's so many questions here. I mean, how do you. I know, but let's try to get through this story first. I mean, why is Volsi untranslated? This is what the
0: people well, it's- want. It's literally just the name of the thing. It means something like old, dry horse penis, but in this context, it's actually a proper name. It is not. Now, I have Cleesby and Vicveson's authority on this. Admittedly, the reasoning is somewhat circular. I quote, Volsi, evidently the same word as the Greek phallus, the name of a heathen phallus idol, for which, see the curious story in Flatterbook, called Volsathauter.
1: So, I mean, it's it's one of these. The name is the name because of this instance when it's the name. So that doesn't yep. work.
0: Uh, shall we move on with our story?
1: <clears throat> we oh, can the, try. It's going to be s- too much for me, though. <laughs> uh,
0: the sister is absolutely disgusted with her brother's behavior, but the servant woman is delighted with the lad's joke and roars with laughter.
1: Well, there's a bit uh, of classicism for you.
0: I, absolutely. Uh, then the, the boy's mother snatches the volsi from her son, saying... Well, there's no need to waste a thing that might yet be useful. Uh, I think that's It's not it's not what you're thinking. I wasn't thinking anything. Don't put well, it's words not that either.
1: or volses in my uh, mouth.
0: <laughs> she she carefully dries the phallus, wraps it in linens along with some herbs and leeks to keep it from rotting, and then keeps it in a long box. Ugh. A very long box, Andy. Mm. Uh, and all autumn long, she brings it out every evening and prays to it, believing what? it to be a an idol of her household god. That's crazy. And making the rest of her family join in. And by the power of the devil, we're told, the volsi grew and became strong, so that it stood upright on its own whenever the wife
1: wanted it to. I I don't even. <laughs> how do we How do we keep going?
0: <laughs> all we can do is muscle through, Andy. It's always darkest before the dawn.
1: Oh, so if anyone ever wondered whether medieval people made filthy jokes about genitals, wonder no more. Is that really something people weren't clear about? I mean, I don't know. If they've read Chaucer, they know. But uh, right. But wait a minute. Now, why is she packing with leeks and herbs? Is she
0: seasoning this thing? I mean, preserving it from what I can tell. Apparently, this is a sort of homemade way of mummifying the penis. <sighs>
1: as one does you gotta mummify that you mean right.
0: anyway the members sorry the people in the household are each expected to pray over the phallus each night and each person's attitude about it is apparent
1: from the verses they'd make all right stop there why well because the Fouter does Our- <laughs> Our story now shifts to King Olaf, who's splitting his attention between converting the people of Norway and watching out for King Knut's forces. Mm -hmm. And he's heard of this bizarre household in the north. And since converting the people to Christianity is always his concern, well, he has his ships docked in the harbor nearby. And then he leaves most of his men behind, but takes two of them with him to visit this farmhouse. And their names are uh, Finn Arneson and Thormod Kolbrunarskald.
0: Okay, so... Knut invaded and drove Olaf out in 1029, so this story probably takes place somewhere within a year or so of that point, uh, which means it's very likely that our friend Thorara Nephilsen is on one of those ships in the harbor.
1: Which is an attractive option, I think. Um, but as usual, you know, he's not that important to the story. Ouch. Well, Thorara ne- he's just not. I know, I know. Anyway. It's still mean. The king, the king and his companions put on gray cloaks and they approach this farm. But there's no one around. And so they enter and make themselves comfortable in the main room. And then finally, around dark, the daughter enters the room, carrying a torch to light the fires and the candles in the room. She asks the three men their names, but each of them in turn says, My name is Grimm.
0: Okay, we've come across this before, but it's been a while. Uh, Grimmur is a traditional name for men in disguise or traveling anonymously. Mm-hmm. It's also an actual name. But it does carry the meaning,
1: one who is masked or cloaked. Yeah, and well, it's, it's a pretty terrible disguise in this case, because just a gray cloak over the king's very fancy traveling's clothes, well... Right, but yeah. I mean,
0: you know, it's not really meant to be a great disguise. He called himself, I'm the disguised guy. <laughs> he did, and yes. so did
1: both of his friends. Well, the daughter's not stupid, and she's not fooled. <laughs> As she leaves, she says, I can see gold on the guests and robes of velvet. I like the look of those rings. I'd rather speak than lie. I know you, my king. You are come, Olaf. Clever lass. Very. And Olaf merely says, You'll keep quiet about this, since you're a wise woman.
0: Uh, I just want to point out that you stage-directed me last time we had a St. Olaf story, that he was old and quavering-voiced. Is he old, though, at this point? I mean, you are the one who told me to give him an old, quavering voice last time.
1: He's holy. He sounds holy. Let's go. go. All right. You'll keep quiet about this, since you are a wise woman.
0: Okay, so now the king knows he has an ally
1: in the house. I mean, I'm not sure if he really needs one. He is the king, and he's got two (laughs) enforcers with him, and they're just farmers.
0: But it's not that kind of story. If anybody's no. waiting for the body count in the story, we've already had it.
1: The body count is one horse, minus right. its deified willy, obviously.
0: Right, exactly, yeah. So uh, shortly after this, the men of the farm enter, all three of them, and they take their ease. They began to mock the visitors for their fine speech and manner. And the table is then laid for dinner and the
1: food is placed out. And the three gray cloaks grim, they all sit together at one end of the table. It seemed as if they were maybe waiting for something. Well, they don't have long to
0: wait. Uh, the farmer's wife is the last to enter, and she is carrying the engorged phallus Volsi in her arms. She laid it reverently in her husband's lap and began the round of verses.
1: Oh, no. Here we go with
0: these, Andy. Are you ready?
1: No. But you, you go first, and I'll try to prepare myself, but it's not oh going to go God. well.
0: It's, it, fe- it feels like being at the top of like a water slide or something. Uh, <laughs> and it's got some loops right. in it. Okay, so... Uh, she begins the round of verses. You are proud indeed, Volsi, and hold yourself high, wrapped in linen, supported by leeks. May the giantess accept this holy thing. And now, my husband,
1: you must take up Volsi. And so her husband glares at her, but does accept the Volsi and recites mm-hmm. a verse. If I had my way, we would not bring it out, this worshipped wand at this time. <laughs> May the giantess accept this holy thing. But now, my son, I'll see you with the Volsi.
0: <laughs> it uh, it goes on like this for a while, folks.
1: What an embarrassing Thanksgiving this is. <laughs> so are we going to talk about this, the giantess accepting this holy thing? Oh, yeah.
0: I think we are, but let's tell the story first. All right. So the son, who you'll remember is the one who started all this nonsense, takes the Volsi, waggles it around at everyone, and then hands it to his sister, saying, And I apologize profusely for this. The bridewomen will bear this horse (laughs) long. They will wet the dangler tonight. May the giantess accept this holy thing. But now, farmer's daughter, pull Volsi to yourself.
1: Oh, I just—I just want to be clear. You did say "horchlong" just then, yes?
0: Yes, I did. I actually—that's the best I could do. Uh, I translated mm-hmm. these verses for us, and that's my translation of the word "betel."
1: Yo, oh, betel. Yeah. We have run across that word before. Yes, we because have. Because is the nickname of one of Greta Asmunderson's ancestors.
0: Yep. That's uh, well spotted. Uh yeah, All right, we can get a pit stop here and deal with this. Yeah, at the beginning of Greta's saga, we followed the story of Greta's great-grandfather, Onund Treleg. Mm-hmm. Onund was the son of Ofig Clubfoot, who was the son of Ivar Betel.
1: Right. Okay, now, this is the guy that Bernard Scudder translated as Ivar Horsecock.
0: Yes. Well, yes. Uh, we did a deep dive on this word back then, and what we came up with is that it's literally something like horsetail, but that some translators decided this was a reference to horsetail grass, and others decided it was a veiled reference to, well, to a horse dangler, as this writer is calling <laughs> it.
1: Okay. This writer's you, by the way. But because uh, <laughs> <it laughs> you're the translator. Um, but yeah, no, I think its use here isn't ambiguous at all, which is really interesting oh, no, it for Evar no. Beytil.
0: Right, no, it's not. So
1: does that resolve the question for us?
0: Uh, I'm not sure it changes things. Although if I'd remembered that Beytil was used in this thou we could have brought it up as evidence back then. But really, this is just more evidence that the term can be used in poetry as a kenning element, right? a mm-hmm. poetic metaphor for an equine tallywhacker. A tallywhacker, yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. So it it is though being used as poetry here. Betil. Um right. of course it's not a poem in Ivar's nickname, but that would be a reasonable leap to make if this use in poetry is known, right? Mm-hmm. Betil as horsecock. Right. Um and it certainly looks like it's known here, I think, right? And it's 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 exactly the
0: sort of reference we might expect from this farmer's son, who, as we've already seen, thinks this huge tadger is hilarious. Waggling it as at his sister seems uh, right about up his
1: alley. Yeah, it certainly does. So yeah, let's get back to this game of past the John Thomas. <laughs> the daughter is far from happy about taking the Volsi, especially in front of the king. And Oh dear, taking you know,
0: the Volsey. That's a that's a turn of phrase right there. <laughs> it is. But you know, she's obliged to follow the habits of the house. Sure. Well, no one else knows, but she knows that the entire family is conducting this ridiculous ritual in front of their famously Christian king. Mm-hmm. This poor teenage girl is suffering about the worst kind of embarrassment at being associated with her family.
1: Listen, as the father of two teenage daughters, uh, pretty much anything (laughs) I say is embarrassing to them. So, yeah, this daughter isn't real happy about all of this. She simply handles the Valsi gingerly. But nevertheless, she does manage a verse and she says, By Gefion, I swear, and by all the other gods... That only under compulsion I take this red-nosed thing. Oh my God! Red-nosed. Why is it red-nosed? What happened? We'll explain. Oh my God! May the giantess accept this holy thing. But now, house thralls, grab hold of Volsi. You
0: know that is without question. By the way, my favorite description of the Volsi in the entire Thought. It's just... this red-nosed thing. Anyone who has a male dog will understand exactly what she's describing.
1: Oh, I hate you so much. Why would you say that? Now I have to... I have a male dog. Yeah. But I couldn't have you going away thinking
0: this was like a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer kind of thing.
1: Oh, it's terrible. Please, just let's get this over with. John, thank you for making the subtext text. I, I appreciate that.
0: Well, I don't think that qualified as subtext. <laughs> uh, all right. So the male servant now takes the red-nosed subtext from her oh. and says, oh, I'd rather a thick and broad and lumpy loaf of bread in my hand than hold this Volsi on a workday. May the giantess accept this holy thing. But you, thrall woman, push Volsi at yourself.
1: Push and pull Volsey. There's a lot of pushing and pulling of this Volsi. There's a lot you of pushing be, and pulling the Volsey. They gotta be careful. How many of these are there? How many how much oh. ma- you know, there's only so many strokes the Volsey can take.
0: Yeah, no, there's a few more to go. The author knows the kind of humor his audience wants and he's selling it wholesale.
1: <laughs> All right. So now the servant woman takes Volsey. And oh Lord <laughs> <laughs> Because as you know, servant women in the sagas and right. any kind of literature of the elite right. a bit bawdy. Well they're gonna be—they're gonna be the worst. So she takes Volsi tenderly, and she holds it to herself, and clapping her hands over it, she says, "I would not be able to resist the desire of making you a prison if we were laid down alone together in comfort. May the giantess accept this holy thing, but you, Grim, our guest, get yourself a grip on this Volsi."
0: Oh dear. And poor she's Finn dirty. Arneson. Yeah, she is a little bit. Uh, I'll just say to you, Andy, that uh, th- that verse took me longer to translate than all the others put together.
1: Really? Why is that? Uh,
0: trying trying to figure out a way to explain what she's saying without being ashamed <laughs> of the words that I would have to write. <laughs> yes. Uh, making, making a prison for Volsi is about the nicest way I could put what she says she's going <laughs> to do to this idol.
1: And the poor guys that get handed this thing, I love they're like, like, what the f*** am I holding this for?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Poor Finn Arneson, who's seated next to the servant woman, is handed this thing. Yeah. Uh, He takes it in his hands, presumably with a slapping sound, and he says, I've spent long times anchored in the sea, or with sure hands raising sails on a ship. May the giantess accept this holy thing, but you... Grim, my companion, get yourself a grip on Volsi.
1: (laughs) And uh, the next in line was Thormod Kolbrunerskald, who looked at the Volsi very closely and with raised eyebrows. And his face suddenly splits into a grin (laughs) and he speaks a verse. Though I've long been a traveler, never before have I seen a prick at attention passed along the bench. (laughs) May the giantess accept this... Holy thing. But you, grim, my companion, have yourself a feel of this Volsi.
0: <laughs> and with what we have to say is a certain aplomb, Thormod flops this thing into the hands of his king. And Olaf, who is not especially amused by all this, forgive me, all this dicking around, recites a <laughs> verse. I have been a helmsman and a champion in the prow and a leader of all the hall troop." May the giantess accept this holy thing, but you, dog of the house, embrace this false idol. He throws the Volsi onto the floor, and the dog, Larry, grabs it and takes off. Mm. The wife is outraged by this and cries out after the fleeing dog. Uh, which one of us was doing her voice?
1: I think it was you, uh, but does it really matter
0: at this point? I mean, no, but in these difficult times, we commit to our art, Andy. We bear up and we carry on. Besides, this is the Mm -hmm. last verse, or the last couple of verses. Who is that man unknown to me who brashly feeds a holy object to dogs? Heave me over the doorframe to know if I can rescue the holy sacrifice. And she begins struggling with the dog, who's not about to let go of this tasty treat. Put it down, lever! I better not see this! Don't you swallow it, you heartless mutt!
1: (laughs) And while she's busy rolling around on the floor with this dog fighting over a chewed-up horse wang, the king throws off his disguise and everyone (coughs) realizes the game is up.
0: Yeah, and I imagine there's an awkward moment while everyone else is awestruck at the king's presence and the wife and dog are still wrestling over the floppy horse hose. And then their fight comes to a slow halt as she looks up at the king... In the thunderous silence.
1: (laughs) Oh, oops, sorry, you were saying? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Olaf waits for everyone to quiet down and then shows a surprising and very kingly restraint. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have anyone killed or blinded or anyone's guts filled with lead or anything like that. No, no,
0: he's not that King Olaf. He's the other one.
1: No, no. He is. Instead, he begins to preach about Christianity to the household.
0: Yeah, well, presumably while the dog slips out the door with his prize.
1: Well, yes, probably. That horse wing is going down that gullet. But, uh, But everyone but the wife is eager to hear about this new religion. And after a while, the king's patient zeal overcomes her resistance, and the entire household accepts the new faith. He even sends for his personal priest, who then baptizes them all before the king takes off
0: yeah he's like some kind of a hyper religious golden age superhero bringing christianity to the hinterlands he is
1: that's true um that said the uh, the family's really gullible obviously well,
0: that's fair no they they are clearly easily <laughs> swayed by the winds <laughs> very very much
1: they 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 know which way the horse wang points they surely do um but uh you know the end of the story does kind of back up this idea of the power of king olaf it says Orloff was deeply concerned with getting rid of evil practices, paganism, and sorcery, whether in the remotest regions of Norway or in the inhabited parts of the mainland. In these things, as in all others, he was performing God's will. Inspiring, really. It sure is, yeah. It's kind of odd that this religious tale had so, so much horse penis in it, though. So much horse penis. All right. Uh, yeah. Where do, we, where do we start with this? Haven't we done enough damage? Do we really well, need to keep going? <laughs> I mean,
0: I, for one, want to talk about those prayers. Oh, the, uh, Specifically, yeah, the, something you asked about, uh, that they were jointly yeah. made to the Volsi itself and to what we were translating as a giantess.
1: Yes. All right. Yes. Yeah. The word in that moment is mornir, which for a couple of reasons is a problem.
0: Yeah, uh, more broadly, translating this story is a problem. There's a lot of ambiguities in the language, and hapax legomena as well, uh, which is a, a fancy term for words that appear only once in the recorded corpus of a language. So sometimes you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants trying to wrestle meaning from this story. Rather like the wife wrestling with the dog over the uh, Volsi.
1: Mm, uh, thanks for that image.
0: Yeah, and these verses are particularly uh, turgid. Uh, so, would you Mordor,
1: stop? <laughs> you
0: gotta, uh, Mordor is translatable as giantess or giantesses in the prayers, but the well, term lot, might also There's a mean, lot of
1: volsci to go around.
0: There is, because uh, the term might also encor- encompass uh, giants, trolls, ogres, or anything else along those lines.
1: Yeah, so this is something that's come up before. Humanoid monsters weren't carefully defined categories in the literary imagination.
0: Right, or in the cultural mythology, as far as we can tell about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a kind of sliding scale of humanness, and monsters moved along
1: that scale according to the needs of the author. Yeah, and so you decided as a translator on giantess as a catch-all term, right? But it's really not. No, no, not at all. I'd
0: say troll is probably more of a universal catch-all for the humanoid monster in these stories. Yeah,
1: I would agree with that. Uh,
0: No, the giantess translation is because the word murnir is used in kennings for giants in some poems. Okay. So it's certainly, especially in poetry, a justifiable decision to translate it as giantess. But that's hardly the only translation problem here. To give you an idea of how uncertain this line is, scholars can't even agree about how many of whatever it is we're talking about. (laughs) I see. I was
1: wondering about that.
0: Yeah. No. Some have read this as a proper name, right? Uh, Possibly even as a disguised name for a god or goddess. Hmm. In which case, Murnir would be read as singular. That's interesting. But if it could also be read as a regular, non-specific noun, in which case we'd read it as probably plural. So without getting too deeply mired in linguistic microtrivia, the whole thing's a bit of a mess.
1: Yeah, well, the idea of it as a name for a goddess wouldn't be shocking to me, actually. Frankly, I was surprised by the lack of specific reference to Norse gods in this yes. text, right? I mean, wouldn't you expect to see a reference to Freyr somewhere in this poem? Yep. Freyr is commonly associated with phallus symbology. Yep. Heck, if you go online and search for Frey Phallus, you'll find, well, you'll find... Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you'll end up on some kind of watch list. Don't do that. You will not. <clears throat> I've looked it up many times. No. Uh, <laughs> no don't do not do that work on your computer, obviously. Uh, do it at the library. Hmm? <laughs> oh, dear. But if you do, you'll find statues and pendants and things dedicated to Frey that are pretty overt about his status as a fertility god.
0: Yeah, so you'd think he'd be mentioned at some point in this nonsense, you since think. he's the one whose cult is apparently being made fun of.
1: Right. But the author decides to keep things non-specific. Well, so it could be an otherwise unattested poetic name for a deity, right?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. But it could also be understood as idol, which might make at least as much sense if we read it as having connection to household gods, or if we think the author is making a specific Christian point about images and idols. Now, given the treatment of the Volsi as a deity or a
1: fetish object in its own right, I don't think we should discount that possibility as well. Well, I mean, the entire question of household gods is really fascinating, the here. Um mm. We talked about them in our last episode. Um, they're the ones that killed poor Thedrandi the Golden Boy. Yes, exactly. But, the, you know, there isn't enough quality scholarship out there on the subject of the Deesir. But we keep getting these little hints about them in our readings. But yeah, I mean, it, it does make sense to treat the Volsi as a kind of household god, I guess, for them.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I decided to stick with giantess here. And there are a couple of other translations out there that back me up. But I want to be clear that any translation you access might have a different term for the figure who's being addressed as the what we'll call the receiver of Volsi. Which, since we've decided we're OK with a bit of ambiguity here, I'm a little hesitant to bring up the next question. But what is this thing for?
1: Well, I mean, it's an exciting story of Super Olaf, faster than a speeding longship, stronger than a locomotive, able to leap tall farmhouses in the single bound, nice. thanks to the power uh, of Christ.
0: You know, you left locomotive in there. You didn't change that one.
1: Well, those are pretty strong, you know?
0: But <laughs> Fair. Uh, no, what I meant was, what was the point of writing this story down? Was it really a mockery of fertility cults? I mean, does this author even have a specific practice or a specific anecdote in mind? Or is the point just that there's a cult doing non-Christian things and it's about a horse dangler just because it's a funnier story if you get to say things like horse dangler?
1: Or or is it about celebrating Olaf's work as a Christian king, right? Because that last Mm. bit sounded like the actual point of the story. Everything up to that last bit was ridiculous, but I think that last—everything up to that last bit is making fun of fertility cults and pagan religion.
0: Sure, and people have tried to resolve this. Uh, Herbert Joseph has called this a, quote, literary remnant of a phallic cult. He acknowledges that the story itself is almost certainly apocryphal, but he thinks it's likely an oral legend passed down from the Age of Conversion. I'm not buying
1: any of that. Yeah, no, I I (laughs) agree. If that argument is correct, though, I'm going to play with this. Then one or more cults, one or more cults like this existed, even if the details and the link to King Olaf aren't based in reality.
0: Yeah, I know he's leaning pretty heavily on the oral transmission argument, including the idea we've seen before with some sagas. That the, the poetry, the verses, are the part that were passed down through the generations, and the prose is a kind of later time frame sort of to, to put those verses together.
1: Come on
0: now. Uh, if you remember, we read some similar arguments back with Cormac's saga. There have even been a few people who have said something similar about our friend Ail Scott LeGrimson's saga.
1: Uh, I mean, of course that's possible. But it's hard to be too confident in that argument in the total absence of any kind of transmission evidence. And I would also point out that there are plenty of sagas that have poems that are we are we know based on their linguistic evidence that they are created by the poet in the thirteenth or the author in the thirteenth right. century. I think uh, Gisli saga is a good example of that. Gisli's poems are not from the period that Gisli was alive. Gisli's poems are from the period that the saga was written.
0: Right. But then other sagas like ale do appear to at least have been passed down, right? They do appear to have some qualities that make them older.
1: Absolutely, now, but yeah.
0: Right. Go ahead. Oh no, I I'm not going to make an argument for this, but we do know that we we can say is that phallic imagery was a part of certain cults, right? You oh, mentioned definitely. The phrase cult earlier. And there are certain traditions that suggest a certain phallic connotation to Thor's hammer.
1: Like the, uh, yeah, like the reference to its use in the wedding ceremony in the Thrymsky, the poem.
0: Right, yeah, no, exactly. But, but this cult of the Volsi, I, I, this
1: might be taking things a little too far. Or may, maybe not. I mean, we just don't have enough to work from here. This story only exists in a <laughs> single source, which is a life of King Olaf in the Book. And Book is a compendium manuscript that includes a number of biographies of the early kings of Norway, including King Olaf II. Right. So it's a lot like
0: Heimskringla, which we've yeah. talked about before. But there is an important difference.
1: Oh, yes, definitely. The stories in book include some stories that, that there aren't in the Heimskringla or anywhere else for that matter. Yeah. And Volsathautr is one of those extra bits. It only exists as an insert in a biography of King Olaf.
0: Yeah, and it's actually got a bunch of other important stuff as well, including the Greenlander Saga, which we've obviously covered on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And the only surviving Icelandic language copies of Orkneyinga Saga and Faringa Saga about the history of the Orkneys and the Faroe Islands, respectively. So this is a very important manuscript. Definitely. And there are some other Thouter preserved in the manuscript as well. So we'll most likely return to Flat Hair Book in future saga shorts.
1: Oh, yeah. Not a lot more with quite this quantity of horse wiener humor. But yeah, we'll be back.
0: Oh, no, no. Yeah, this, this tale is in a league of its own when it comes to jokes about the, the stallion's barnyard bayonet.
1: I would have gone with the uh, the Bone Ranger.
0: Oh, very well. Uh, I mean, we could run a hundred jokes up the flagpole, but at some point we have to get
1: on with our lives. Yeah. Uh yeah, this isn't a, an episode of Letterkenny exactly. So uh all right, <laughs> do you uh, want to have a feel in the in my old rune sack here Are you, you oh. see what kind of questions we got this week? What, very mature. Very mature. Uh
0: but all right. Uh maybe you guys can save us from ourselves. Uh what have we got?
1: All right. Well, our first question comes from Owen the Young, who says nicknames (laughs) yes owen (laughs) owen signed off as uh, owen the young so that's what we're gonna call him now nice he writes hi john and andy so keeping up with current events i have a question about isolation and quarantining in the icelandic saga age did iceland's somewhat remote location protect it from continental pandemics or did the Icelandic traveling spirit bring disease back with it And in the case of a contagious disease in Iceland, would the lack of towns and somewhat isolated nature of each individual farm prevent a swift spread of disease? The only mentions of a disease in the sagas that I can recall is individual people dying and causing a body count controversy and some plague in Greenland. So hopefully you can help answer this. So what do you think, John? Great.
0: Yeah. Hi, Owen. Uh, This is a great question. Uh, First of all, I hope you're well and keeping safe. And I want to be clear that you know, Andy and I made a decision that we would continue to do the podcast, continue to put out these episodes, in the hope of entertaining people uh, and educating them. While uh, while we're all in our homes and having all this time on our hands, yeah. Um, but I hope nobody takes this as us taking this whole thing very lightly. Uh, we want everyone to be safe, obviously, and we're hopeful that uh, everyone can get back to a normal life as soon as possible. Uh, and I hope that. Our ludicrous podcast and our incessant amusement over the existence of a severed horse penis uh, bring you some kind, measure of entertainment uh, during this time. Uh, but the answer to this question. Uh, depends on whether we're looking at Icelandic history or saga history, really. Right. Uh, First of all, when it comes to Icelandic history, to what we know from archaeology and from other sources, we know that Iceland doesn't have a record of some of these outbreaks of disease in the early medieval world that we know from elsewhere, because as far as we know, no one was living on the island yet at that point. Later on, there's some sign of disease outbreaks on the island, but there's nothing in the way of a full-scale pandemic.
1: Right, yeah. Iceland's isolation may indeed be a factor there. Yeah. So, for example, we could move ahead to the 14th century and see that Iceland seems to have missed the Black Death of 1348 to 1350, the plague that was caused by the Yersinia pestis bacterium.
0: Right. Iceland missed that pandemic and missed the subsequent sweeping returns of the plague in about 1360 and 1374 or so.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's been argued that the plague was active somewhere in the world continuously for at least three centuries. Mm. But those are the major outbreaks, and Iceland misses both of them. Right, so we can make an argument
0: that the island's isolation was a major factor, probably the deciding factor in Iceland escaping those outbreaks. Mm -hmm. The rest of Europe wasn't so lucky, but Iceland's luck didn't last forever, and an outbreak of the plague in Iceland in 1402 devastated the population. Somewhere between 25 to 50% of the population died, and many others were permanently weakened by the disease. So, yes, the island's isolation was a protecting factor, but once plague reached the island, the distance from one farm to another doesn't seem to have helped.
1: Yeah. And the problem may have been that Icelanders were actually pretty plugged into social networks. Mm-hmm. We've talked before about the Icelandic gossip grapevine and how effective it was at spreading information.
0: Right. And it spread other things as well. Individual farms may have been spared, but only if they were able to work out the danger and completely isolate themselves for the duration of a plague that took almost two years to work its way through the island. Not many people could manage that. And on a number of other occasions after that, Iceland suffered similar plague events, including a second brutal wave of the Ursina-Pestis plague at the end of the 15th century.
1: Uh, So that's the historical answer. Yeah. But uh, you, you dropped a hint about there being some sign of outbreaks of disease. Did you just mean the Greenland plagues?
0: No, although you're right. or I, I mean, I suppose Owen's right. Uh, we do have those references to large numbers of deaths due to disease outbreak in the Greenland sagas. Right? It seems that the Greenland settlements were susceptible to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We don't have many explicit descriptions of disease sweeping Iceland in other sagas. That doesn't mean it wasn't happening or that it wasn't sort of recorded. But we do have to look at how disease might be remembered in the storytelling memory of the island. Mm. What we get is these episodes in the sagas where some kind of supernatural curse falls on a household or a region, and suddenly people are
1: dying left, right, and center. I'm looking at you, Erbija Saga. And Kjolnasinga Saga, and Gretis Saga, Mm -hmm. and a bunch of others.
0: Right. We actually get multiple paranormal outbreaks in Erbija alone. Uh, at one point, a woman named Thorguna comes to the farm at Froth River from abroad, and not too long after that, she dies. After her death, a series of hauntings begin that result in a couple dozen people dying just in the immediate area around this one farm. So, we have a tightly knit community devastated by a series of deaths after an, ex- an exogenous factor, an outside factor, is introduced through Thorguna's arrival and death. I'm not saying that's a memory of a disease outbreak, but I'm also not not saying that. It certainly ticks all the boxes,
1: yeah, it really does, which is a, an interesting way of looking at it but I you know the thing, the thing that I think is most interesting is that you use the word exogenous um mm-hmm. it's not not a word we hear every day.
0: Well, I've actually been doing uh one of the things I've been teaching through podcasting to my students uh, is the Black Death of the 14th century, mm-hmm. You're talking about the difference between endogenous factors, factors that are intrinsic to a society, and exogenous factors, factors that come from outside the society. Yeah. So a, a community, a farm community like the one that Owen's talking about, right, these small units, uh, when a person arrives from outside, they bring with them whatever germs they've been exposed to. Yeah. Right. And so you do have in a kind of microcosm there, an example of the kind of thing that would happen when plague spread, right? when a right. disease could spread. All right. I think that's got to do it for tonight. We've, yeah. uh, we've both got grading and teaching prep to do. Andy, uh, anything else to add?
1: No, no. Just the uh, usual reminder that we always want to hear from our listeners who have any questions or comments or ideas about things we're talking about in the show.
0: Yeah, and we don't always say this, but we'd love to hear from people no matter where in the show their questions are from. We've got people listening to all different episodes, and we're happy to talk about anything from anywhere in the Saga family. And uh, if they did want to reach us, Andy, how would that happen exactly? I don't know. You know? <laughs> no. They could uh, they could find us I feel like you've got a three by five index
1: card somewhere with that information on No, I find. do know where they can reach us. They could find us on Facebook or Instagram at Saga Thing Podcast or on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod or on our WordPress blog if they want. They could go to Saga or even contact us by email if you want. We're we got an email address. It's Saga at gmail.com.
0: Yeah. Or you can get yourself a pair of horse danglers. Attach red and yellow handkerchiefs to them and send us the most obscene semaphore message in history. Oh, my God. That is. <laughs> or attach white handkerchiefs to them and surrender in style. Wow.
1: Wow. <laughs> well, let that be the takeaway image from this episode, everyone. Enjoy. <laughs> and remember that you can uh, always check on the Thing website for the list of upcoming episodes. And according to that list, we'll be back soon with a return to our journey through the actual sagas of Iceland with the saga of Horde and the Home Dwellers. We're going back to the Outlaw sagas for the last one. Uh Give it a read if you can find it between now and then, and we're going to be back soon enough. All right, take care of yourselves, take care of each other. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.
0: can see a frisky dangler cut away from a father of horses for you servant woman this volsi will not prove dull in your lap
1: you know we're just getting started right you're gonna have to cut out my coughs holy